Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3. We have been learning the, the theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of His grace, God's grace. And so we've been learning about the riches that God's given us in His grace, and we're going to come to the end of that today. We get to verse 14 in chapter 3 as we've been going through Ephesians. Paul now brings us to the original thing that he was going to say when he started chapter 3. In verse 1, he said, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, now we're going to see the, the finish of that. Because of that, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had interrupted his original thought in verse 1 to explain his job assignment in the church so that the Ephesian Christians wouldn't be discouraged by his imprisonment that they would see that this is part of God's call for his life, that where he's at is where Jesus has him. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was explaining his job assignment so he could encourage them to do their job assignment in the church, even when things get hard. Now, having followed the Holy Spirit's direction to kind of take that small detour, Paul returns to his original plan in verse 14 to share another prayer that he regularly prayed for the Ephesians the Ephesian Christians. And this prayer contains five beautiful but big requests to our awesome and big God. So chapter 3, we begin in verse 14. Paul says, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And then he gives the five prayer requests at the end of verse 16 through verse 19. So we start off here with Paul's introduction to his prayer. For this cause, well, what cause? Way back in chapter 2, because Jesus is our peace. Because Jesus has given everyone who is in Christ an equal membership in God's family. Because of that, he says, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul first introduces to us how he prayed this prayer. He says that he bowed, he bent his knees when he prayed it. This phrase to bow the knee is used four other times in Scripture, once in the Old Testament, three times in the New Testament. It's used once in the Old Testament for those who were to acknowledge Joseph's position as ruler over Egypt, that as he would ride in the chariot throughout Egypt, the person in the front would call out, bow the knee to the ruler of Egypt. And so that's what they would do. They would, they would see his ring as the second most powerful man in Egypt next to Pharaoh, and they would have to bow the knee to him. The other three times in the New Testament, it describes how every knee will bow before Jesus when he returns to rule. So it's interesting because in every case, it's a humbling position. It's a position of humility where you are showing your submission to someone who is superior to you. Now, in those four uses I mentioned, the position is some as a position that's commanded and then enforced. You don't get an option, <laughs> right? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's compulsory. But here in verse 14, this other fifth use, it's voluntary. Paul does this of his own will. Now, getting on one's knees voluntarily or kneeling voluntarily, whether it's to pray or worship God, it has the same ideas when it's enforced. It's a position of humility. It shows my submission to a superior. 
But the difference is, is that my heart's in a different place. It comes from a heart that's chosen of its own accord to surrender. And so when Paul is here getting on his knees, he's assuming a position of humility and, and showing in his heart that he is submitting, he's surrendering to his superior. He says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is it necessary to kneel in order to pray or worship? Yes, and if you don't, we will kick you out next time. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally joking. No, no. No, it's not. In fact, kneeling in and of itself doesn't make us right with God or even closer to God. In fact, if you don't know Christ, if you're not born again this morning and you kneel, the only thing you did was create stress for your knees. But even though kneeling isn't something we have to do, there are times we should kneel because we want to be obedient to the one who saved us. You say obedient? Yes, God commands us to kneel in the Scripture. I got in trouble when I very first got here to Calvary Chapel Orlando because I said God commands us to raise our hands. And somebody was really mad. Pastor Will, the Bible doesn't tell us we have to raise our hands. I don't have to raise my hands. You can't make me raise my hands. I was like, I'm not trying to do that. But the Bible does say, command us to raise our hands. It doesn't say we have to do it every time we sing, but it's a command from God. There are many expressions of worship that are a command from God. God commands us to sing. He commands us to worship, commands us to shout. There are things that the Bible tells us to do. It doesn't mean we're supposed to do it every single time we sing, or we, let me phrase that, we have to do that. So please don't hear what I'm not saying. What I am saying, though, is we do find places in Scripture where God commands us to kneel before Him, to bend the knee. We read it in our Scripture reading in Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the sheep of His pasture. That is a command in the Hebrew there. It's not a suggestion. It's not a thought, it would be nice if you did this. It's a command from God. And so, I guess what I'm saying is if you're unwilling ever to kneel in prayer or in worship, I would say to you that's not a good thing. That's not a good place to be. Now, when we read throughout the Bible, sometimes Jesus stood when He prayed. Sometimes He knelt. Sometimes believers in the Bible stood or sat when they prayed or when they worshiped. Sometimes they knelt. So there's no right or correct position physically to be in when we pray or when we worship. But that being said, I can say from my own life, that there are times because of the conviction I'm experiencing because of for my pride and my stubbornness that kneeling seems like the only right position in worship or prayer. You, you remember when Peter was on the boat with Jesus and Jesus, you know, they hadn't caught anything all night. Jesus says to him, he says, why don't you put your nets on the other side? Now, I'm going to give you the will translation. It's probably not accurate, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Every time I read that passage, all I kind of hear is Peter going, <laughs> okay, Lord, let's, let's get something straight here. Like, you're the Bible teacher, I'm the fisherman. Like, I do fish. I know how to fish. I've been fishing all night, and I've caught nothing, and the solution to that is not throw the net on the other side. So you stick to preaching, and I'll stick to fishing. Doesn't say that exactly, but that's kind of the impression I've always gotten when I read the text. 
because he explains to Jesus, I've been fishing all night. Me and my partners, my business partners, have been fishing all night, and we've caught nothing. But I love Peter. At the end, he goes, nevertheless, at your word, I'll, let it, I'll do it. You are the master. You're the rabbi. I'm the student. So I'll do it. The reason I think, though, that other thoughts were in Peter's mind is because of his reaction when he does what Jesus told him to do, and their nets are breaking, they have to get their business partners to come over because the ship is sinking, it's filling with water because there's so much fish dragging it down. Immediately, the Bible tells us that Peter fell down at Jesus' feet. He got on his knees before Jesus, and he said, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. His pride and his stubbornness, he was so aware of it that the only right position in that moment was to get on his knees. Sometimes kneeling seems the right place for me to be crying out to God when I'm overwhelmed and I see no answer to my struggles. It seems the right place to be to acknowledge his superiority when I I recognize I can't do this, that he's my only hope. Sometimes kneeling in worship seems like the only right position to me when I'm overwhelmed with how much I don't deserve the grace that God has shown to me. So there's no rule book about when you kneel or when you don't. That's not the point. And the ushers aren't going to monitor you when we sing at the end of the service. (laughs) Kneeling, kneeling, rebel here. (laughs) Meet with Pastor Will on Tuesday. (laughs) But what I would challenge you is this. Is there ever a time that you would consider kneeling in prayer in worship? And if your answer to that question is no, I would say again, I don't think that's a good place to be. I would encourage you to examine why your answer is no and to ask the Lord to show you how you can be obedient to Him in this. So, that was how Paul prayed. Who did he pray to? He says, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unto means to face the direction towards a goal or an event. He would turn all of his attention to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We have all been given the name of Christian now. That's our name. I'm a Christian now. I'm in Christ. Now, it says whole family, and we tend to think that, oh yeah, we're all one big family, but that's not the point that Paul's making here. The phrase whole family, family, it means every family line. Every family line has its own name. I'm a Ramirez. We tell our family, tell my kids, you're part of our family. You know, this is how we do things, right? Do the family name proud. We all have a family name that's associated with us in some way, shape, or form. We have a legacy of our family. And yet, that's not our, our name now as Christians. We have been given a new title, a new name, Christian, family of God. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter who your ancestors were, good or bad, what country you're from, good or bad, what color your skin is, what language you speak, or what your family legacy has been. God the Father, the first person of the Godhead, is now your Father, too. He's your Father. You've been given a new name, and you're part of Jesus' family now. Now, before Paul gets to the content of his prayer, he is mindful, and he explains that mindfulness to the Ephesians. He's mindful of the awesomeness of the one he prays to. 
He kneels facing the one who gave not just him, but all believers a new name and a new family. Let me tell you, somebody who was excited about having a new name was Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, all the titles that he could have, Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, man. First king of Israel came from my tribe. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. I'm named after him. And what did it end up? He ended up killing Christians and blaspheming Jesus. I'll tell you, Paul, the apostle, was glad to get a new name, glad to get a new legacy. And so he reminds them of the fact he's mindful of the awesomeness of the one he prays to. It is so good to start prayer with praise and adoration by acknowledging God's awesomeness. And do you take time to do that when you pray, to adore and to praise God? It's so easy to get right into it, right? Like, I got to pray, and you got God, there's a lot going on, so I got to get right there. I find very often when I you know, sit down to pray, I, I pray while I'm reading my Bible, and then I'll pray after I read my Bible. And, and so, you know, sometimes after I'm done, I close the Bible, and I just start getting into it. God, be with my family, be with my wife. Start going through the list, right? And sometimes, you know, I kind of sense that still small voice say, hey, slow down. Oh, that's right, God. There's other parts of this, too. Praise and adoration. We praise and adore God simply because He's worthy, but it does have kind of a a side effect to it. And it's not like those commercial side effects, like, take our amazing stuff. You're going to (laughs) die if you do. This is a good side effect. Uh, You know, it's a benefit. We don't adore or praise God because of this, but it is a side effect in that very often when I'm just talking to God and telling Him how awesome He is and praising Him and slowing down for a second, everything that I'm about to pray about that's so big kind of becomes smaller. Who Paul prayed to was the Father, the one who is the Father of our Savior who now we're we're part of that family too. And then Paul, in verse 16, he begins to exp- he explains how he wants God to answer his prayers. That he would grant you, he says, according to the riches of his glory. Not from out of the riches of his glory, but according to the riches of his glory. Now, what are the riches of God's glory? Well, God's glory is God's awesomeness. His awesomeness. And God's awesomeness abounds. There's a lot of it. Like if you were to say, let's, how much awesomeness does God have? And it'd be cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. There's a lot of it. His awesomeness is, is abounding. If you try to measure it, it just keeps going. And so Paul's desire isn't that God would answer his requests by throwing a penny out of the vast awesomeness of his glory, by giving us some crumbs. Paul desires that his requests would be answered in the full measure of God's awesomeness, according to his awesomeness. That God would go big with Paul's big requests, that God would hold nothing back. In James chapter 1, verse 5, we know that we can pray like that. In James 1, 5, it says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally. In other words, he doesn't hold back. So pray big prayers like Paul does here. God is not limited. So why should our requests be limited? 
You might think to yourself, well, the reason I limit my requests is because I might have a greater chance of getting a yes. Like, for example, when I was a kid, go to my dad. And if I asked my dad for $200, that was not just a no, but are you crazy? On the other hand, if I asked my dad for $2 to buy a couple wax packs when I went up to the general store with my friends, I might have gotten a yes. What you need to understand is your heavenly father isn't like anyone else here. The reason my dad had to say things like that is because his resources were limited. But our heavenly father's resources are not. His glory abounds. Now, God might say no if saying yes to your request isn't what's best for you or others. But God isn't going to rebuke you for asking. He's not going to come to you and say, really, you're going to ask that of me? Who do you think you are? Pray big. Paul did. Now, one other thought before we get into Paul's five requests. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, it says, listen, we know that if we ask anything according to His will, that we have the request, the, the, the petitions that we've asked of Him. We know that if we ask something, we, and that if we know if it's His will. Like today, if I pray and say, God, could you warm it up a little bit? I don't know if that's God's will. I can't know for sure that God's going to answer that prayer with a yes. But if we pray something that we know is God's will, then we know that He's going to answer with a yes. Since these five prayer requests that Paul makes here are Scripture, we can know they're God's will. Which means, if you pray one of these five requests for yourself or someone else, you could be absolutely sure God will answer them with a yes. Absolutely sure. So, if you're looking to say, well, I don't know how to pray. We already did covered one prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, right? There's another one here that you can pray and you can know it's going to get answered by God. So consider that as you're looking to add to your prayer toolbox. So, all right, what were Paul's five requests? Well, the first one here is in the end of verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, number one, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. What does that mean? Well, to be strengthened just means to be made powerful or strong. With might, it means the ability to perform a task or an activity. So his prayer is that God would make them strong or powerful enough to perform a task or an activity. Where? He says, in the inner man. How? By his spirit. So by his spirit. So it's through God's spirit that we're going to receive the power or the strength to do the task that he's called us to do. Now, that means this does not happen by exercise or practice. You can't just go to Bible college or seminary or whatever, and, and, and you pop out a good preacher, or you pop out a great missionary. That's not the case. I'm not saying those are bad things, but this is not what Paul's discussing here. This is a supernatural work of God's Spirit. It's a supernatural work of God's Spirit in our lives. And it, the avenue or the area where He works is in our inner man. Now, what's our inner man? I don't have a little person living inside me. I don't pull him out and go, hello, inner man, how are you doing? Great. Put him back in. That's not what he's referring to here. The inner man here, well, let's, let me phrase it this way. Human beings are made in the image of God. We are an inferior trinity. We are a triune being. I have a soul. 
My soul is unique in its will, personality, intellect, and emotions. It's different than your soul, okay? I have a spirit. That's the part of me that allows my soul to fellowship with God. That's unique to me as well. And I also have a body, which enables my soul to communicate and interact with God's creation. Okay? I'm a triune being. Now, the inner man refers to both the soul and the spirit. That's the rational and the moral part of me. My body is not a rational or moral thing, all right? But I could prove it to you, all right? I have an evil daughter. I do. She's evil, all right? She's an evil chef. And she bakes these cookies. And while she's baking these amazing cookies... The evilness in her heart causes her to not, like, put fans up that make all the scent and smell of the cookies go outside, but instead she allows it to spread throughout the whole house. And then she doesn't put the cookies in a cage with a lock, but instead she leaves them out that any susceptible person might walk by and take one, two, three, and even possibly four My princess makes good cookies. And my body is not rational or moral in concern to these cookies. All right? I walk by and my soul goes, the fourth one. You think the fourth one's? You crossed the line with two. And the body goes, take another. Doesn't matter. We'll be happy. My body craves lots of food it shouldn't eat. There's no moral or rational impetus to its cravings. But another part of me knows I should make a different decision. That's my spirit and my soul, the inner man. That's what Paul's talking about here. So Paul's request is, he's praying that God's spirit will make their spirit and soul strong, powerful, so that they can perform the job assignment God has given them in his family. And isn't that a great thing to pray for somebody? God, make so-and-so's spirit and soul strong so they can do the work you've called them to do. They can fulfill the role you've given them in your church, in your family. Who doesn't need to become spiritually stronger to do what God wants? We all need that. So it's a great prayer to pray. He prays that for them. His second request for them is in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The word there to dwell, it means to make your home in a place, to to be at home in a place. Every believer in Christ experiences Jesus' presence in their heart the moment they get saved, the moment they repent of their sins and place their trust in Christ. Paul's not talking about that. Paul is referring to Jesus being at home in our hearts. Well, where is Jesus' home? Well, Jesus' home is with his Father. Whoever his father is, that's where he had always existed for all eternity past. It's heaven, a place where everything is done exactly as it's supposed to be done, a place of love, a place of righteousness. So for Jesus to be at home in our hearts means we are becoming more like heaven, right? Now, this request, therefore, is tied to the previous one about God's Spirit strengthening us. God's Spirit strengthens us so we can do his work and we can bring more of heaven to earth. 
that we can be more heaven on this earth to other people, especially to our brothers and sisters. So how does that happen? Well, it happens, it says, by faith, that Christ might make His home in your hearts by faith. We become more like Jesus, and He becomes more at home in us as we trust Him more. Because trusting in Him means we yield to Him more, and when we yield to Him more, the Holy Spirit does His work in us. So Paul's second request here, he's praying that they will grow in their trust in Jesus with the result that Jesus is more at home in their heart. His prayer is, Lord, help them to trust you more so they reflect heaven more than they reflect earth. And isn't that a great prayer to pray for somebody? Lord, help them to trust you more so they reflect heaven more than they reflect earth. Now, The way God does that in our lives, He builds our trust in Him, is by helping us to understand how trustworthy He is. And that ties into Paul's third request at the end of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, I realize when you read verse 18, you think, well, that's that's the rest of the sentence, Pastor Will. It doesn't read that way in the original Greek. These are all infinitives. There's five of them here. They're all separate direct objects, indirect objects here. So they they all have their own spot. I know it doesn't sound that way when you read it in English because that's because it's hard to translate in English. But the third request is that they would be rooted and grounded in God's love. And the phrase being there, it refers to a fixed state, that you would come to a place where you're completely, it's a fixed thing that you are already rooted and grounded in God's love. Now, the word here, rooted, it it speaks, it's a picture word of roots going down deep into the soil, finding more water so that the tree can stay healthy. It was used as a metaphor for establishing something firmly where it can't be moved. And then second, he wants us to be grounded in God's love. Grounded just means to lay a foundation, to securely settle a base. And what we're rooted and grounded, what we're firmly established in, securely settled in, is God's love. In love is emphatic here. It's it's the way you would do it in, in Greek. It'd be how like we either capitalize everything or we put it all in bold letters or we highlight it or put italics or something, something to emphasize it. Paul puts it at the start of the sentence to emphasize it's God's unconditional devotion to us, for us, that we need to be, find a fixed state of being established in, settled securely. So Paul's third request is that the Ephesian Christians would become firmly established, have a solid foundation on God's unconditional love for them. That the reality of God's devotion towards them would become a fixed state in their lives. And isn't knowing for sure that God loves us something every person needs? You can't move forward if you don't know that. He says, we love Him because He first loved us. So if you don't understand that, you're going to have a more difficult time trusting Him and loving Him. And so this deeply settled and firmly fixed foundation, that's His third request. Now, that would be the undergirding that enabled the Ephesian Christians to become fully capable wielders of God's love, which is Paul's next request, verse 18. That you, now applies to this, not only that you, 
being rooted and grounded in love, but that you also may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. The words here are far stronger in the original language than they appear in English. The words may be able, it's not just being able to do something, it means to be fully capable of doing something. The word comprehend here doesn't mean to understand, it means to grasp, to lay hold of, to apprehend in such a way that you're an expert wielder of that thing you're holding. And that's what Paul's desire is, that you would be fully capable of wielding, he says, with all saints, that all of us would wield it together what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of God's love. You know, I spent way too much time trying to understand the difference between looking at something in four dimensions rather than just three. This week, my mind is just melted just trying to think of it. We tend to think and operate in three dimensions. So you've got length, width, height, right? Breadth here means depth. So what is this fourth dimension of of depth? Well, the best explanation I can give to you in my mind-melted state from all the articles I read this week is this. This fourth dimension of, of depth, it describes the many complex layers that exist inside the other three dimensions. Like, for example, within a perfect cube, if it's a cube, it has to be, you know, everything's the same. Inside of it, there are an infinite number of other cubes. Now, you won't see that, of course, because we don't operate that way. But, but this is the concept of this fourth dimension of depth. There's a vastness inside that also exists. And so, in the beginning of verse 19, Paul explains that this many-layered vastness, this depth of God's love, is the idea he's trying to convey with these words that you might know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Now, the word here for know, it means experiential knowledge. Being rooted and grounded in God's love is not an experiential knowledge. It comes from His Word. It comes from being established in the Scriptures. But we also need an experiential understanding of God's love as He works out what He says in His Word in our lives at this experiential knowledge that surpasses or goes beyond the boundaries of what this thing can grasp. So Paul's fourth request then is that the Ephesian Christians will become fully capable of wielding the vast love of God, which can never fully be understood. Isn't that a cool request? Like you read it and you're like, Paul, what are you saying? How can I wield something? How can I be fully capable of wielding something I can't fully understand? Well, you need to to live in it. You need to live in it in such a way that you begin to experience it, and you experience it more and more and more and more in your life so that you can properly wield it. God, I know we'll never fully understand your love, but can you give these Ephesian Christians enough of an understanding that they're fully capable of dispensing your kind of love to each other? And his prayer is that they would all do that together. Now, what church doesn't need that prayer? What person doesn't need that prayer? We all do. God, please make Calvary Chapel Orlando a church 
that knows how to wield your love. Please pray that every day. You know, we sing songs where we ask God to teach us to love like He does. But to do that, we need both a solid understanding through God's Word, and we need the experience of His love in our life. So let's be those who pray for our church and for one another that God gives us a deep enough understanding of His love so we can know how to give it back out to each other. Amen? Now, this understanding and experience of God's love leads to Paul's final request at the end of verse 19, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you think every other request that Paul gave here was pretty big? you think the last one was so big it didn't even make sense, kind of? Well, this one will blow your mind. That you might be filled, it means to cause something to be completely filled up to the top. Filled with what? All the fullness of God. It means the full measure, the complete full measure of God. What what does that mean? How can I be filled completely with the full measure of God? Paul's fifth request is that they would be exactly like Jesus. That's an ambitious prayer, don't you think? How are you going to take this and make it exactly like Jesus? Paul, why waste your time with that prayer? That's That's probably not happening anytime soon. But the truth is, that's the trajectory all of us are on. That's the natural progression of being a Christian. God's Spirit is making us more and more like Jesus every day. For it is Him who works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. That's what Philippians 2.13 says. God is working in us both the desire and the ability to obey Him, to please Him. And I don't know about you, but I'll take every prayer for this, for me, that I can get. Make me more like Jesus. Make me exactly like Jesus. Because there are still so many areas in my life that aren't exactly like Jesus. I look and I can identify many areas of my life that are not exactly like Jesus, and there's probably dozens more that I'm not aware of. And so, I want to be more like Jesus, though. Don't you? So what a great prayer to pray. And it's one God will answer. So, five big prayer requests, some that seem larger than our comprehension. But Paul makes them to a big God. A big God who loves us immensely and has already done so much for us. Everything Paul's listed in the first three chapters so far. So, this is a great model for you and me to aid us in our prayers for ourselves or for others. Now, verse 19 brings us to the end of Paul's teaching on the riches that we have in Christ. And having reached the end of this keep of blessings he's been piling up for us every chapter, Paul now looks up at this pile of awesomeness that God's done for us, and he erupts into a closing doxology of praise for this big, awesome God who is our Father. He says, now unto him, and that phrase unto him is also emphatic. Again, it's like typing out caps. It's like, you need to understand where this all goes to. It goes to him, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages world without end amen 
exceeding abundantly above. It means infinitely more than whatever you can think of, something way beyond what can be measured. Now unto him that can do way more than I've even listed here, way more than you could ever think or imagine or ask. And you know, when we look at this great salvation and the blessings that God has given to us, they go way beyond what we could have asked God for or anything we could have imagined he could do. And the truth is, we didn't even ask him for anything. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have gone our own way. God made the first move toward us while we were still in rebellion toward him. His plan to make us in Christ and bless us as a result was all his idea because of how much he loves us, how good he is. And that love resulted in God's power being directed towards us. Romans 5, 6, it says, for when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for when we were yet without strength, still without strength. Despite millennia of living, we were still without strength. We couldn't rescue ourselves. God already had a plan, and he stepped in and he intervened. We who were without any power to fix ourselves are now the recipients of God's loving power that rescues us not just from the guilt of sin, but also for its power over us. And so Paul says unto him that is able to do this, above all we could ask or think, and how did he do it? According to the power that works in us. Paul had already said in in Ephesians 3, 7, he said, why was I an apostle to the Gentiles? Because I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. I wasn't the most qualified for the job. I wasn't probably the best person for the job. I didn't get it because I, I met certain criteria. It was a gift of God's grace and because of his power, it works and it worked in my life. And so the idea that Paul conveys here is unto him, If he could do it in me, he could do it in you. He's doing it in you. Sometimes we don't doubt God's power. Sometimes we doubt God's willingness to work in someone like me, someone like you. If only you know what I've done, Pastor Will. If only you you knew how ugly I still am. Well, I don't know that. But I know this, that if God loved you like this when you were his enemy, how much more will God do beyond what you can imagine or ask now that you're his kid, now that you're part of his family? Paul, in essence, when he says this, you know, the the awesome things that God are doing beyond what we could ask or even imagine, he, in essence, he confesses, guys, I know these prayers that I'm praying are big, guys, but we serve an awesome God who has already done so much for us. If he can do everything else I've already taught you about in these first three chapters of Ephesians, he can surely answer my big prayers for you, can he not? Do you believe that God is big enough to do the things we've talked about today in you, in others? The sin of prayerlessness is often linked to our own selfishness. Truth is, we we don't take the time to pray because, like we should, because we'd just rather be doing other things. But the sin of prayerlessness is often also linked to unbelief. When I believe what Paul closes out these first three chapters with, well, then you believe prayer works. Believe that what you say matters to God and that he works. So Paul says, 
I praise the God who does awesome things. And then lastly, he says, I praise the God who deserves the highest praise. Verse 21, unto Him be glory in the church. Glory, it means to speak of something as being unusually fine, something of deserving of honor. It's the highest praise you can give. Unto Him be the highest praise in the church, in us, by Christ Jesus. It should be translated in Christ Jesus. The church only exists because we're in Christ. Listen, if there's a church meeting out there and there's people in it are not in Christ, they're not born again, they've never repented of their sins, then it's not the church. I don't care what name you slap on the, the front of the building or whatever, it's not the church. The church only exists because we're in Christ. Unto Him be the highest praise in the church, in Christ Jesus. How long, when? Throughout all ages, world without end. Throughout all ages means into every generation, into every period of time, and then world without end, just in case we didn't get it. It's that beautiful New Testament phrase, into the always of the forever. Aeon, aeon, into the always of the forever. <laughs> amen. Paul says amen. He's saying it's the truth. Everything I've told you these first three chapters is true. Now, if our awesome God was deserving of the highest praise in that generation of believers, well, then He is still deserving in our generation, right? We're His church, right? We are part of all the generations that will come after them, correct? We're part of the always of the forever that God started through the cross, right? Well, then add your amens to Paul's. It's true. I believe it. I'm going to live this out. Settle the truth of a big God who loves you and has done all these things for you. Receive these blessings. Become rooted and grounded in that love and give him the praise he deserves, both as we sing this morning and as you go throughout your week. Let's all stand. Lord, we think back to when we started Ephesians many moons ago. How we began with those first blessings, elect according to the, or elect to that holy and blameless life, in love being predestined to the adoption of sons, accepted in the beloved, redeemed, forgiven, abounded towards with wisdom and prudence, sealed with the Spirit, seated together in heavenly places. Lord, we think of all the blessings you've given to us this morning, and we say amen. It's true, we receive it, and we want to walk in it. Lord, we want to walk in these riches of your grace, and so we re receive, Lord, the blessings that you have said you've provided us in Christ. And Lord, for all my dear brothers and sisters this morning, I do pray for them that you would strengthen them with might by your Spirit in their inner man, that you would make them powerful, Lord, so they can do you know, in, internally, spiritually powerful, Lord, so they can do the work that you've assigned them in your family. Lord, I pray that you would be at home in our hearts as we trust you more each day. Lord, that I pray that, Lord, we would be those who are in that fixed state of being established in your love, that that would never be something that's in doubt in our lives. And Lord, please, that you would make us capable wielders of your love which passes knowledge. 
Help us to understand enough of it so we can wield it and, and give it out to one another. And Jesus, we ask this big prayer that you would make us exactly like you, that you would mold us and shape us by your spirit, that we would shine you, that we'd be something so different, Lord, in our neighborhoods, in our work environments, in our families, and of course, Lord, in our city. Please do these things. You're an awesome God. You're worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.